Hello, everyone. How you doing? Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am really, really excited uh, for this guest here, CEO, author, probably a whole bunch of other uh, labels and names to the amount of work that he's going up, got going on, not just himself, but with his, his team and everything else going on. And I know I'm, I'm recently, people can't see it, but, uh, I flagged and bookmarked his latest book, uh, which we'll dive into a little bit, which is actually my second copy for anybody that follows me online. My, my wonderful one-year-old black lab decided to take a read at, take, take a stab at reading it and, and chew through all my pages and notes. So, uh, you know, I got to go back and, and, and read a fresh copy, which isn't always so bad. So today we are talking with Preeton and Preeton, you have a book, AI and the Future of Education. You've got a ton of other projects and things going on. So um, one, welcome to the show. Really excited for where this conversation is going to go. But for folks that don't know who you are and what you do, um, who are you? What do you do? And what in the world do you got going on? Um, thank you for having me on the show. I'm super excited about being here today. Um, yeah, so I think um, you covered the two main things. There's, uh, I'm the author of the latest uh, Wiley publication on AI and education called AI and the Future of Education, um, where, you know, it's a, we kind of tried to do a, a whole bunch of things um, to kind of prepare teachers for all different aspects of this. And so, um, and a lot of our work mirrors this. And so we do everything from teach teachers how to use AI to streamline their workflow um, to start thinking about the bigger picture of where education needs to be um, in the next decade or two decades. Um, and the book kind of mirrors that. Our work at pedagog.ai mirrors that, where we provide professional development courses. Um, but we also sit down and have really interesting conversations with folks about where we need to go, um, given where AI is headed. Um, but in general, most of my projects have kind of taken this aspect of helping teachers navigate really difficult issues. And so um, everything from the political divide in 2016 to um, the COVID-19 crisis and now AI. So that's kind of the overarching theme of most of my projects. Yeah, I love that. And and before we dive in and, and really explore AI and some of the content of both the book and your platform, you know, I always like to ask people about their, their origin story. And so you've been working through um, you know, whatever the big issues of the time might be. And they all have seem to have similar se- themes and needs, even though they might feel kind of different, whether we're talking yeah. AI or politics or COVID, you know, it, right. it, it does shake and disrupt and, and makes us really think about the human condition. But before we do that, how did you get into this work and and, and where you are now? Because I think that always is a nice way for people to kind of set the stage for like, you didn't, didn't just wake up one day and go, I'm writing a book on AI and I'm going to do this. Like the, there's, there's a process to that. So share a little bit about your journey of how you've got to what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, my journey is definitely not traditional. And so I can't be to tell you that, you know, I, you know, I got this PhD in education and that's where I'm here. Um, my journey started in high school. Um, I started my first educational venture at that point. Uh, it was an educational nonprofit. Um, we provided online tutoring for students across the country. So um, this was when like Khan Academy was kind of just becoming a thing, um, right? Like this is the early stages of where online learning at the K to 12 level was starting to become um, more normalized. Um, and so we were a bunch of high school students putting up, you know, regions prep videos for New York State regions exams, SAT prep videos, um, doing online tutoring, answering, helping students solve homework problems across the, um, the country. Um, and that really got me interested in thinking about like what tech technology solutions there can be to existing problems in education. And that's kind of 
um, you know, that, that was the early um, seed, I guess, um, in terms of my journey. Um, and then I spent, you know, a couple of ventures on ventures as normal entrepreneur uh, in this day and age kind of does. And so there's been lots of failed ventures prior to all the ones that I'm currently working on now um, that gave me lots of lessons. And so whether it was um, internal business lessons or it was talking to teachers and students and kind of learning about um, all different aspects of education. Um, I like to say that like I've kind of taught in a lot of different contexts, maybe for short periods of time, um, but everything from like teaching English in South Korea um, to working with special education classrooms in New York, um, kind of have a wide variety um, of different like stints that I did to kind of gain experience across the world of education. Um, and then I uh, majored in um, philosophy in um, college and uh, we were focusing on like feminist philosophy and education. Um, and that's where a lot of my more concrete ideas about um, where education needs to be, um, justice within the education system, uh, major ethical issues within our education system, um, all of those kinds of topics kind of became front and center and really shaped how I formed my nonprofit um, that provides the civics education. Um, Post-graduation, um, I was working on a bunch of like innovative tech solutions for um, like custom solutions for different education organizations from universities to um, you know, private nonprofits and for-profit companies um, doing really cool things. So we were, you know, one of my favorite uh, clients is um, Thinker Analytics. We build uh, mastery learning systems for them to teach argumentation. Um, and it's one of my coolest projects thus far. Um, during COVID-19, we help schools navigate the digital transition. So we help everything from like 100,000 students debate online um, right at, you know, four months after the pandemic started and their tournaments got shut down um, to helping a small Montessori program in Florida um, navigate teaching online with very young students. Um, and so that, you know, that was the last crisis before AI that we were kind of navigating. Um, and throughout this journey, like, you know, like the technology, the computer science all plays a huge role um, in how I think about these things. Um, I am like someone who's like, um, likes to think about what the, um, the coolest application of this technology is. And so um, when AI came, you know, when the AI like scare came around in the early 2023, um, I was like, wait a second, I've been thinking about this stuff in terms of like way cooler things. I built a um, language learning system in college from my computer science classes. Um, it was looking at some like Sanskrit um, and AI applications mm -hmm. in college. Um, and I was like, why is everyone so scared about something that seemed really cool to me? Um, and that's when we started to build out some like examples of positive uses of AI in education. And we started with Socrat.ai, which is like a custom um, AI bot for teachers. Um, but as we like try talking to folks about it, everyone's scared. Um, and so a lot more of my work is spent on um, helping folks not be scared um, and kind of get to the point where they're even open to having conversations about the the fun stuff. Um, so that's hopefully that's not too long winded, but that's kind of no. the journey there. Yeah. No, I love that because I mean, I think it shows just part of life and that lifelong journey that I think all of us can relate to that we all have to pivot and change and adjust whether we're you know kind of in that entrepreneur world or we are in education whatever it might be um you know we're not alone in these thoughts and i think ai is just another reminder of here is something that that that's coming to the forefront that a lot of people now are are, are processing that the ai is new uh for a lot of people it feels brand new but it's it's not a new concept to the world at large it's been around for decades you know, but it's, I find it fascinating as you were talking that, you know, you have a, a background of philosophy and lots of my recent guests I've been bringing in talking about AI come from this kind of philosophical background, which kind of segues into this, this bigger idea that I'm wrapping my head around. A lot of times when we have these conversations around tech, around AI or education and technology, it comes from, you know, nerdy people like me that love technology and, you know, what's, what's the next tool and how we'll be helpful but it, here, yet there, there is that space, 
but it's really more of like AI is, is, is a mirror of the human condition. And you have more of these ethicists and philosophers trying to wrap their head around this bigger concept beyond like, oh my gosh, kids are going to cheat. I know it's important in the short term and there's, I'm not trying to downplay that, but there is so much more to this. Um, and so as, as, as you've been working through this and you've worked with, gosh, all, all types of people and places and locations and schools and all that, you know, and you've got that philosophical lens. How are you helping people maybe start to think about that? Because I think what I'm finding anyways, is a lot of the short-term requests and needs are more like tech driven. And we're not really trying to, to no fault of anybody's own. We're all trying to survive. We're not taking that time to kind of pause and be like, okay, let's, let's think about this in a broader context before we get so wrapped up in, I need this tool right now to do this one thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and as a philosopher, like there's, there's so much here, right. And I think that's probably why you're seeing lots of other folks um, with similar backgrounds. I'm fascinated by this world. Um, and I think there's like, there's going to be three buckets of changes that are going to happen because of AI. And I think that's where like our thinking can kind of um, take shape. Um, the first is thinking about existing philosophical norms and ethics um, in light of AI. And so, you know, when we already have um, discussions about um, justice within our education systems, what it means to deal with the digital divide, what it means to deal with the achievement gap. Um, and we can think about what, what role can AI play in that, right? And that can be part of the philosophical pondering. Um, the second is, what will society look like? Um, and I think that's a huge part of this is thinking about, you know, when we're philosophizing and coming, you know, political scientists sitting down and talking about political theory, um, the world, there's certain assumptions that all of these things are based off of eco economists all across the university setting, right? So, um, and all those assumptions are about to be turned upside down. Mm. Uh, and that makes philosophers much happier than I think economists. <laughs> um, but we get to think about what, what does justice look like in a world where everybody might not have to work, where economic output might be supplemented by machines? Um, and what, what does that mean for what policies we have to do in order to make sure that our world doesn't become more unjust rather than just? Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about what, what the world looks like when it's turned upside down um, is another aspect of, I think, the philosophy that's super um, interesting. Um, and then the final aspect is to just think about the philosophy of building these systems, right? So there's um, the biases that get ingrained in them, the ethical implications of computer systems that are consuming lots of um, environmental resources. Um, and so I think, you know, philosophers have lots of fodder here to think about um, what what kinds of what kind of world we want to live in, um, in a world of AI, um, and what implications it has for things that we've already been thinking about, um, whether, whether it be minor revisions or it be complete um, rethinkings of our conceptions of the world. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, there's there was, was a paragraph that I, I highlighted in your book that, you know, I won't read the whole thing, but basically, you know, our goals in education haven't changed, but you allude to this idea, but the life that are in the world that our students are going to be entering or actually probably already in, whether we want to accept that or not, but soon when they leave the K-12 system in the space that I work will be markedly different, you know, and talking about this philosophical piece, you know, what have you found working with, with, with educators or, or schools at large trying to wrap their head around that? Because to me, it, that feels like this missing piece that I haven't been very good at articulating. Um, I know there's only so much time in a school day and the teacher burnout and all these types of things. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the time of this recording, I'm getting ready to do some presentation at a conference on AI. And I'm, I want to dive into this thing of like, we've always said, you know, we don't know what the future holds. Jobs will look different. We hear there's so many things that almost becomes kind of like the Charlie Brown, you know, like mom, parent, that wah, wah, wah. But it is. I mean, I'm just looking at, 
the current events of the AI now being moved into lots of different types of hardware. So we're already not even thinking just about, oh, I, I got to learn how to prompt. But it's also like there's these devices that are going to completely revolutionize, whether we like it or not, modes yeah. of operation. How do you how how are you navigating that that conversation? I'm asking kind of selfishly because I feel like that's been a part I've been struggling with. Because I'm thinking about this next piece of how do we start to think about the teaching practices, the education space to be better prepared for this. But that mindset piece, I feel, is like a little hard to kind of help people like truly believe it's here for those that are seeing it, that seeing AI new for the first time. Yeah, um, honestly, I wish I had an easier answer on this. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, you know, I think you, you've already highlighted some of the challenges with this. And I think the the biggest one is that folks folks aren't there yet in terms of being able to uh, get over their fears enough to start thinking about what the world will might look like in four or five years. They're they're you know this these technologies came out you know became popular rather um, in the middle of the school year um, when they already had essay assignments already out. They had their syllabuses planned out for the year. Um, they had standardized tests to prepare for. Um, and at that point, thinking about you know well what exactly why are we teaching these standards? You know why are we assigning the essay? Um, that that seems like you know armchair philosophy. Um, for most teachers when there's um, a test in two weeks. Um, and I think even this fall, um, you know, there, there, there are folks who spend quite a bit of the summer um, kind of taking the time to explore, thinking about these big questions. Um, but when you're coming back to a school system that still, you know, says you still have to have these standardized tests at the end of the school year, um, you still have to follow these standards and this curriculum that we're following across the nation. Um, I think being able to think about what if what if we were to rebuild education without any of these existing things, right? And I think that's that's mm -hmm. the kind of exercises that I think we need to do as educators is, you know, assume we're not just modifying what already exists. We're not just trying to make it work in this new age. We're not just um, coming up with band-aid solutions. If we were to redesign school systems for 2024, 2025, um, given what we now know about AI and where it might be headed, um, it's most likely headed, in fact, um, what would what might we do differently? Um, and I think. I think the scary part is the answer is we might do a lot differently. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's exactly why folks don't want to have these conversations. And again, like reasonably so <laughs> there's, like you said, teacher burnout across the country is really high. Um, you know, support systems across all schools are not the same. Um, and thinking about, you know, the ability to really think about this and reshape your classroom isn't really in the hands of most of the teachers across the country, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And so the sad answer is I think we'll have to have a lot of these conversations in settings like this. Um, and kind of start planting seeds across the country. And I think this is going to be a slower process than I think we can actually afford. Um, and that's also sad to me. So, you know, maybe lots of um, disappointing things here just in terms of where, when this came into, um, like the speed at which it uh, became popularized, um, I think has caught a lot of folks off guard. And, and you're right, this isn't the first time we've had a new challenge. And, and I think fundamentally, this is kind of the point um, in the book is that um, all of our our goals, our principles as teachers don't have to change, right? And I think this is what, um, I think that's where I try to like help bring folks back and, you know, not be like, okay, like I just need to like maybe retire a little bit earlier yeah. uh, or maybe teaching is not for me. It's like, no, this is exactly the reasons you got into teaching in the first place. Exactly the fundamental motivating principles for why we build our educational systems are still true. Um, we want our students to flourish in the external world. Like that is right. Like that is, no one across the country who is a teacher will disagree about that. No one's like, no, I want my student to fail. Um, and what has changed is the external world that we're preparing them for. And, and you're also right that we kind of, you know, the world is not suddenly moving fast. It's always moved fast. And so yeah. we've always, educators kind of assume that um, the exact world that is existent right now will not be the world that especially our kindergartners or first graders are going to inherit in a decade or two decades when they're out in the workforce. Um, but that's, pace is the rapid development of that pace is what's scary now. Um, the world six months ago is different than now. And it's not just about six years. Um, 
And I think one of the ways to highlight that, and I think you're right, there's there's a level of disbelief still, right? And so there's there's these fundamental things that we need to kind of overcome in how folks are thinking about. It. And there's a lot of disbelief across the country that this is not a fad, um, but this is like a short-term crisis. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to folks that I work with during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I highlight that during the pandemic, I was okay with you coming with a band-aid solution, right? I was like, okay, let's do what we got to do. Um, I don't know when this is going to end, you know, like, uh, but I was like, it's going to end. We, we, there was a certainty in all of us. Well, <laughs> maybe not on our darkest days, but <laughs> right. on those days, we, we all thought this would end at some point. Um, and we would kind of get back to some level of normalcy. And I think teachers are excited because they get to go back to being in the classroom this last school year fully. Um, there's some things that changed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think mostly for the better. Um, but all in all, the system is pretty similar to what it was pre-pandemic. Um, there's there's no post-AI world, right? There's no um, pre-pandemic, uh, pandemic, and then post-pandemic equivalent <laughs> for AI. Um, and this is where we can't do the band-aid solution. So, you know, these AI detectors and let's ban it on our school computers. Uh, these are solutions that would have worked if AI was going to be around for two months, three months, maybe a year. Um, but we we need to take the time to think about what what the longer-term solutions to these things are. Um, and I think, I think that that's a part of the conversation that folks are, you know, are not yet ready for. Um, hmm. And I think, you know, hopefully we can have some of that today. Uh, yeah. Get some uh, gears churning into folks' heads. Right. And I love that. I mean, I think that was one of my, my one of my many ahas from the book was helping people see that, like, what AI is going to do is it's, it's maybe going to challenge some of our practices and some right. of our approaches, but our philosophy of, like you said, of why we are in education in the first place that part isn't disrupted. And I think sometimes that, those two areas of thought kind of get interwoven together where it's like, I'm so concerned about cheating, but really I think what we're asking is like, I don't know what else to, to do because I've done it maybe this way for so long. And I'm not saying that that way is, is bad. And I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent. That, there's no judgment there. The But the reality is now with the way we're able to leverage AI and how anybody can leverage AI with zero background knowledge or experience, we do have to shuffle the deck in terms of how we achieve those goals. And to me, that's one thing I've been grappling with a lot, you know, reading through your book is like, okay, I think that I can help teachers understand that philosophy is not being challenged, but our strategies might need a little bit of a facelift, you know, and I was thinking through, that lens as well. Like I was just reading about um, the, this company developing hearing aids, for example, and how it can mute other voices and it can pick up certain voices to highlight. So if it's a family member and I'm thinking about my grandmother who has a hard time hearing and she's got dementia and it, it can also um, trigger if she were to fall um, in case she couldn't reach her phone because she's not cell phone savvy, you know, bless her soul. And I'm thinking this is incredible, um, you know, in these cases. And then I'm starting to, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now in my brain, five, 10 years, who knows, it could come out tomorrow, but it could be like, this could be technology that's now just like in our AirPods and it can translate any language instantly. And all of a sudden now something like a hearing aid is not seen as like, oh, I don't want to be seen with a hearing aid. It can now be part of like the next fashion trend that I can go travel to Paris and I can understand everybody because I don't have to know all the languages. And I'm kind of getting nerdy and kind of long-winded here, but my thought, my my thing that I'm trying to bring to light is like the world is going to shift and the things that seem really, really important now are going to be resolved by tech and AI and hardware and these companies that see the way where I don't have to, you know, I, 
the conversation is, do we block chat GPT at any point in time? It's just going to be integrated into everything. So there's not even, what are you, are, are you going to block email? Are you going to block all your Google? Are you going to block all your Microsoft? <laughs> you know, uh, like, so we're, these, these are these short-term things that we're, we're, we're wasting too much energy on. Um, and how do we get past that to see, like, we've got to get ready because I'll go back to your COVID thing. It caught us off guard. We were in a Band-Aid type approach system. Nobody felt good about it, but we understood why we were. Like, how do we learn from history to not be in the same situation when AI, to me, is truly, truly integrated into everything? Um, we have an opportunity to be proactive in that approach to be better prepared. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that's, that's right. Um, and I think I think this is where, like, the, the catch-up is so important. And I think... Um, you know, folks, we we could be preparing for these these next level integrations. Um, the next, you know, we're the these technologies are still in their infancy. Um, yeah. If you think about where Google was six months after its launch versus where OpenAI is six months after its launch, and then think about five years after it, um, it you, you'll be scared. Um, but I think there's also there's so many exciting things, and I think um, I think this the hearing aid example with language translation is a great example of thinking about we really need to think about these things from multiple different angles, right? And so. Um, yeah, there's there's a great potential for it to increase um, how we interact with other folks, increase um, cross global communication, increase our ability to travel somewhere and fully like integrate um, and not feel awkward uh, trying to order your croissant in a Paris <laughs> cafe. Um, but there's also you know there's also massive potential in education systems, right? And so um, that new student who just um, is starting their school year off with no English background and is being dropped into a third grade classroom, um, might be able to wear that same hearing aid to get English translated into their native language. And maybe it starts to slowly integrate some English words so that there's slow integration um, of the language. And so they can kind of slowly transition over from um, their native language over to some English fluency. Um, and that's that's something that, you know, is a real challenge faced by many teachers across the country right now, where they do have students who are starting this, this school year, this September, off with no English skills at a very high grade level. Um, and they're having trouble navigating it because our ability to put a single uh, translator for every single student is not there. Um, and we don't have the human power to do that in the country um, or anywhere in the world. Um, mm -hmm. AI could do that for us instantly. Um, and these technologies might be extremely accessible and cheap. Um, and so trying to think about what, what are, what's the potential for us to solve those existing problems. I think that that's the kind of thing I wanted to highlight in the book too, was that we can really use these technologies not to just make some problems worse or highlight them, but really to solve things that We've, we've all known it's a problem and we've all been trying to come up with band-aid solutions for this as well. Um, but we now have potential to actually have a permanent strategy um, that's actually accessible and actually doable. Um, and these technologies are very close. And so this isn't like, oh, we might be able to do this in two or three years. We can probably do this by the end of the school year. Um, and that's where we really need to start thinking about, you know, like where, where can we use, think about AI in a productive way um, to deal with the parts of humanity that make teaching really complicated um, and hard um, and leave some students behind oftentimes um, and kind of meet them where they are. The other part of the hearing aid, though, and this is where like you know, the philosophy brain is turning on, is what does it mean for learning a language now? Right. So um, what does it mean to be teaching a foreign language class in a school? Um, how do you incentivize your you know, eighth grade students who are taking a foreign language for the first time um, to learn these foreign languages if they can just put on this hearing aid once they walk out of your classroom um, and have the language translated? And this is where that's where I think we need to start thinking about um, why, why we teach the things we teach. Is it really just for the util utility of learning a language? Is there something about learning a language itself that is 
um, has intrinsic value. Um, but the essay is an easy one, right? So most, you know, anyone who teaches essays across the country, but like, yes, of course, like the essay is not the final work output that we care about. It's the thinking that goes behind it. It's the thinking about language. It's thinking about your arguments. Um, it's the sitting down and actually like figuring out how you're going to articulate your thoughts. And those are the real important parts of an essay. Um, but we have to, and folks are starting to do the, those conversations because they're worried about plagiarism, they're worried about cheating. And so there's lots of conversations already happening across the country about what is the, what is the point of an essay in the world of AI? And I think most people are like, well, don't. Like there's, there's still a point. Like, let's stop asking that question, right? Like that's yeah. not really the point. It's how do, we, how do we focus on that point with our students maybe is what we can start talking about. Um, but we need to have that conversation about every single thing we teach. Um, right. And I think that that those are the countries that are super interesting to think about uh, because they really force you to think about the, the the intrinsic value of a lot of the things we teach. They force you to think about what like if there is no economic output benefit um, from learning these things, do we still want our students to be able to speak a language? Do our students still want to speak a language? Is there something about um, how, like actually using those words from your own mouth that it has a unique benefit to us as humans? Um, is there something about the joy of learning a language or even the cognitive process of learning a language that makes you smarter? Um, and there's research about some of these things up. Um, and there's things about, you know, like really understanding um, a concept in a different language, like that can't be articulated in your native language. And so, um, you know, there's oftentimes um, words in my native language of Gujarati um, that, well, I'll like sit down and I'll think about, well, I don't really think there's anything I can say in English to convey this. Mm. Um, and so if, I, if someone else were to learn the language, um, to, in order for them to fully understand what I'm saying, I think they would need to speak Gujarati um, to understand that concept. And I think that those kinds of things we need to start having conversations about with our students and say, you know, maybe you can get a rough translation. So you can, yes, you can travel to Paris, you can travel um, wherever you want and get, get a buy, do your the basic things. Um, but if you were to really sit down and have a conversation with somebody from this from Paris, um, and want to really understand what they're thinking, really relate with them and really think about the emotional um, content behind what they're saying and not just a rough translation, you might still need to learn the language, right? So, um, and then poetry is a great example of this. Like mm. you can read translation on translations of these poet, of, you know, poets in different countries. And some translations do a great job of trying to you know, bring back um, the, even the rhythmic style of the poetry, the word choice. But at the end of the day, the original is still the original. You still will not have the beauty of the language, um, the beauty of every single syllable choice that this poet used um, if you just read a translation. And so being able to have these conversations about there, there's an aspect of humanity that you can only access by learning these things. Um, and, it, you know, this is this is all off of a hearing aid that we're talking about. Right, so now, right, right. Um, right. Like that, that's the, that, I mean, that's that's the, the amazing part. And I think the fun part, but I think also the overwhelming part for a lot of folks. Um, if like one single random hearing aid analogy that you brought up um, can really cause us to think about so much about how, what we teach and how we teach. Um, what about what everything else that's coming oh. out at a writing pace? Yeah. I mean, you know, and even we stick with that hearing aid thing as you're talking, you know, it's. I think it's a, a great reminder that just because AI can do it doesn't mean that there aren't things that are still not important to learn, just like it, like you alluded to. And I think sometimes we we freeze and go, oh my gosh, it can do that. Well then I don't, I'm not needed as a teacher. No, actually you're 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 needed more than ever before because now we can really put a lot of thought and energy into the human side of learning. You know, and even with this hearing aid analogy, I think of of of, of two things. One is you're talking about your native language and I'm, and you're talking through that. It, it reminds me of like, I don't know if it's where it sits in the, in, in the gray scale of all these philosophical things, but like also ensuring that culture identity isn't lost, you know, just kind of a translator thing. It's, it is important to still understand language, but maybe, maybe because maybe now we can become more culturally diverse and, and go explore places and I could have help. And then all of a sudden I get, I gain a new appreciation or passion for, 
this culture. And now, now, now I really want to learn the language because of the poetry or the music or just the way, whatever it might be. And I know schools, there's, there's no money to do that, but in this utopian world where we can maybe go travel or explore now, all of a sudden, do we have, do we, are we increasing engagement? Are we increasing our, our enrollment when we do see issues of chronic absenteeism, you know? And then I think about this, this other recent event where school I was just working with in a project we're doing, we had a, 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 a Zoom call with an expert and a student had just moved in literally the day before from Brazil and she speaks Portuguese and English is just not there yet. And yeah. uh, Zoom didn't have the perfect translation. Like if I talked, it could do closed captions in, in, in Portuguese. But when our guest talked, it couldn't, Portuguese wasn't available to come back. However, afterwards, because of AI, the, the brunt of the work wasn't on the English language learner teacher or ESL teacher, depending on where people live. There's none of the different titles. I took the transcript of the Zoom, put it into uh, Claude and AI and turn it into, and what I learned was like, there's actually, and I should know this just being an educator, but like there's different styles of Portuguese. And so I was, I learned that there was a Brazilian Portuguese, but it translated it. And in a matter of literally five minutes afterwards, I could, I, I put that text file into the YouTube video. Now I've got Brazilian Portuguese closed captions. I got a document for the, for the student to be able to use and the teacher to use. And I just think about like, you know, translation things have been around, but this took me mere, merely five minutes. <laughs> and I was able to work with the student, like, is this accurate? You know, and she's like, yeah. And so I just think about, she can be now more immersed into the learning experience as much as we can. And there's other tools too, that before, you know, that would have taken me forever, or it would have been another workload for this ELL teacher that's trying to navigate 20 different languages in the building. <laughs> And now it's like, we can all be part of this help to leverage this for real-time learning for kids. And so, yeah, as you're, if we're talking to this hearing aid, it, it is pretty miraculous. All the different, uh, you know, I'm thinking like this mind map of all the things. And I think these are the conversations that get me excited for us to start to be proactive and thinking through what AI and what it means for society at large, as well as what it means for, for, for education. Yeah, um, no, I, th I think that's exactly right. And I think just like also thinking about where where the technology could be if educators were informing the process, right? And so mm. I'm going to stick to this hearing aid thing and I hope the listeners aren't, you know. No, it's great. I think it's good yeah. though. I, I think they can relate to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> but you know, we if, an if a language teacher is sitting with, down with the developer, they might tell them that, um, one of a cool feature to have would be that every single vocabulary word that a student is encountering, um, it, it saves it somewhere and then it reprompts them. Um, there might be instances in which it uh, goes in and out. And so words that a student has already encountered and learned, it might uh, display in English and then words they have not yet, maybe it does it in Portuguese and shows them later um, mm -hmm. what that word is. And so, you know, the ability for these systems to be really smart, really cater to the individual students' own learning journeys thus far and keep track of all of that. And then even cater their experience of the world based on that. Um, these technology, this is all doable, right? This is all doable now. Now, accessibility is a concern in terms of cost of doing it, implementation, sure. all that. But in terms of the actual technology existing somewhere in the world, it exists now, right? Like that is that is that is a doable thing. Um, and I think this is where the access part is really important. And so a lot of these things were doable for a while now. And I think um, thinking about um, what what really changed this year has been access. Um, and I think that's going to be the theme of the year. It's going to be these technologies that are existing in some university setting. Um, some, you know, there's a researcher out there trying to figure out language learning and they're working on this new 
hearing aid um, is going to now start to pop up in mainstream consumption, whether it be um, commercial devices for you to use on your own, whether it be for commercial devices that are sold from business to business to, to uh, schools. Um, we're going to start to see a lot of this technology that's kind of been floating around for years. And we've been hearing about it in this random like Bloomberg article that talks about this, oh, this cool thing that like no one ever sees to actually happen. Um, or it's like, okay, like that's cool. Um, it's going to it's going to be on shelves in Walmart. And I think that that's where we have to think about um, both the, the benefits of, you know, this is great. Now it's accessible. And I would think about all these cool implications for education um, and how we can solve these crises um, that happen on a daily basis in our classrooms. Um, but also let's, let's make sure we're, we're ahead of the curve in terms of explaining to our students why what we're doing matters um, and why all these things are so important and what that means and what implications it has for their journeys. Um, because I think, I think both those angles are just so powerful, right? I was just thinking like in both the immediate implications for what we do in education are great, um, but also like how dramatically it changes the world um, for the students long-term is great. Um, and this, you know, again, like I'm sticking to the essay and the plagiarism example, just because it's the one that everybody relates to. Right, um, right. But, but, you know, like it, it is amazing that a, a device can write a five paragraph essay for a student within a few seconds. Um, but it's also amazing that a like paralegal can quickly shift through uh, a bunch of legal texts and summarize them for a lawyer within five seconds. And so thinking about, you know, the exact same things that we're you know, maybe worried about in terms of its implications for education um, are also things that are the students are going to have to capitalize on and use in their careers long term. I mean, their lives long term, whether it be for careers or for personal um, enjoyment. And so starting to think about, OK, how do we get how do we get our education systems closer to that mindset of maybe efficiency does matter in some context. And so um, and, and I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true that efficiency is a one-to-one -one map between economic output um, and careers and what we want to do in our schools. Um, I think there's the processes are a little bit more important than goals in school and, and careers and schools or processes. Um, and, but, you know, we need to make sure that we're bridging the gap a little bit, right? I think like telling students that, um, you know, the, the calculator, all these examples that I've been talking about so much already, and that um, of course, you know, maybe forcing a like 12th grade um, calculus students use not use a calculator would be a little harsh and brutal and unrealistic. Um, but that first grader probably shouldn't be using the calculator in order to do their like basic arithmetic. Um, and I think that's where we figure out what, where that where's that spectrum for AI tools and which and different AI tools. Um, when do we think that the students are ready to use these tools so they can finally augment their human um, thinking and ability to process these things? And when is it replacing it too early and too prematurely in a way that doesn't help them develop those capabilities? Yeah, I love that. And, you know, you, you talk about this too in the book, and I think we, we we're, we're talking about this too here a little bit in this conversation, but as I think about that human intelligence or our ability to what we can do as humans and how do we leverage AI tools to offload some of these repetitive tasks that for some people, it is their, their full-time job. And it doesn't mean that they're not needed, but we're, I don't have the answers and I'm not necessarily in those shoes to know that you know uh, as a paralegal i could be i could be replaced by an ai algorithm but i don't think it's that what i get excited about is we can utilize in this cognitive surplus i don't know how the best terminology to use it by reducing the amount of time and energy yeah. and brain power we spend doing repetitive tasks over and over and over to minimize that what can humans truly do now that we have this extra cognitive surplus? Now that these tasks are done, what can we do with it now? And so I see this like like shift of like, man, we can do even more incredible things because of the amount of brain power that we could free up. And I also think it's not to go do more work, but to do different work or or higher level work 
that for some of us, by the time we get a chance to, I think about myself I, I, or any of us, we have, we have a full work day, or a full work week. You know, I, I get to right after dinner and I'm, and I'm really passionate. Like I want to go learn more about AI right now, but my brain is just fried. And I just, but I sit there and go, okay, this is probably about 30% of my day could be reduced not because it's not neat or important, but something else could do it. Now maybe I have that, that creates that new spark of thought or that new concept that could help somebody. That's where I get really excited uh, to see what that, what are we going to do with the cognitive surplus to minimize some of that repetitive task work? But I know that that's also scary for a lot of folks who make their living off of that because it doesn't seem crystal clear what that next step is. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much of what you just said. Um, and I think just like, um, you know, there, there is a, the, the first level um, of thinking about, it, and this is, this is kind of our pitch when we talk to teachers too, right? Is that, um, you know, one of the reasons teachers are burnt out is, is that they don't have a cognitive, have a cognitive um, scarce, uh, scarcity, um, deficit rather, sorry. Um, yeah. And, you know, think about um, how can AI kind of help us at least meet, like bring back that, reduce that deficit um, and kind of get us to the point of having a surplus to be able to think about, you know, what is that new innovative thing I can do in my classroom rather than just like, how do I, how do I grade these 35 essays um, this week? Um, I think, yeah. you know, there is some, there. Um, the, the, the new thought that I've been, you know, grappling with lately has been, um, there's also a danger here. And I think the danger is that I think these repetitive tasks, um, actually play a role in preventing burnout for some of us. And so, um, I think the figuring out, you know, I think at some point there's a, a lot of excitement that we can do so much more. We can use our cognitive energies more usefully, more fruitfully. Um, if AI can do all these, the, the, the repetitive tasks that kind of, um, don't really capitalize on human intelligence. Um, but at the end of the day, those tasks also give us a break. Yeah, um, and this is my worry when we talk about teacher burnout, when we talk about mm -hmm. uh, efficiency in the economic system, is if, you know, if our expectations shift with this, um, then I think we're going to be back in the same cycle. And so mm -hmm. uh, if, if our solution to teacher burnout right now is let's free up teacher time by allowing them to um, use this to generate lesson plans, generate a bunch of formative exercises. Um, and then the next step is that we make something more complicated for our teachers, because now we know they have more time. Um, and the reality is that every teacher across the country who's listening to this right now is going to be like, yes, that is, that is, that is exactly <laughs> going to happen because what my admin will do to me. Um, I think that's what I want to be cautious about is because I don't think our hu the human brain actually, I think does not, and you know, I'm not a neuroscientist and I'll, I'll let someone else comment on the neuroscience here. Um, but at least as, a, as a, you know, firsthand experience, I've realized that when I, when I have a great, very productive day with AI, where um, I have offloaded a bunch of tasks, I'm more tired than the day. Um, because now every single ounce of energy I've used that day is at those high level tasks, right? It is at the highest levels of human performance that I can possibly do um, because I've offloaded so much of that lower level performance, but it also means that I've, I've done a lot more high level performance than I would probably in a week in a day. Um, and that, that's, that takes a toll, right? There, there's a, there's a reason why some of us, you know, at some point just turn on a TV and do some menial tasks um, and still are happy because we're being productive and we're getting some work done. Um, but we're also not fully able to you know operate at that 100% level. Um, but if, if the expectation shifts that we all are, ex are operating at the 100% level because everything else can be done by AI um, at the same levels that we were operating at maybe 20 to 100%, um, I think burnout is going to be another, you know, we're just going to face a new stage of burnout with, with AI. Um, and I don't know what that means in terms of how we have these conversations just yet, right? Yeah. So, um, and I think right now we're still catching up at the point that, well, this can at least like bring you back from burnout right now. 
Um, but I think just like as we talk about this and as we pitch this to administrators and as we talk to teachers across the country, being mindful that maybe the right solution is not, you know, we'll find all these new tasks for you to do with your free time and your free cognitive surplus, but it is that you can do use that cognitive surplus for your own life. And the example you cite about coming home and learning about something else, um, you know, maybe traveling a little bit, maybe even just like going in a VR world and traveling it because you have to do a little work the next morning. Um, but being able to use that extra time to kind of tap into your human potential outside of your career, um, I think needs to be a part of how we rethink economic output, work, career, and work-life balance. Um, That's good. That's good. I, yeah, you've got my, my gears turning. I, you know, a lot of my work that I, when I do presentations, I always talk about the goal isn't to do more work, it's to do better work. But as you're talking, it's making me think, you know, that's true in pockets for certain individuals, but what it's not addressing is the system at large and the system needs an overhaul which you alluded to at the very beginning you know just because it's like well your contract day says you are going to be here from here to here and therefore we're going to squeeze in as much as we can you're you're absolutely right um because there's also kind of this I think it's a gimmick um, and that might upset people, but like we say, oh, we do care about our staff and our employees. You know, here's, here's a newsletter with 10 things that you can go do for, for your mental health on your own time on the weekend. And what I, what I like what you're saying is, you know what, maybe it doesn't always have to be exactly a, an eight hour or 12 hour day. Maybe it's, I have this stuff done and, 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 and so be it. And you're so right. I was just, even as you were talking about those repetitive tasks, I don't enjoy doing it, but I do find great peace in it. And that's like doing laundry, like folding laundry. And I'll, I'll I'll self confess here just for the sake of the podcast. I'm sure some people will laugh or maybe I'll get made fun of, you know, I, you know, I'll throw on a little love is blind episode, fold a little laundry just because the brain needs to stop. And, uh, you know, and that's what I need now. There's days when the dirty laundry is full. I maybe I wish I had an automated AI robot that could do it for me. But I do, as you're talking, I'm like, there is something really important about that <laughs> for the human condition to be able to continue to propel forward and not be redlining at, you know, high level thought 24-7. Yeah, that's right. it's it's so good. It's so good. I love it. It's a good point to bring up. I, so you know, I I, I want to be respectful of time here because I think we could probably just follow these uh rabbit trails for days this has been really exciting i'm scribbling notes all over um you know is are there are there other things that you've been well actually let me me rephrase this as we bring this to a close you know what what i'm also curious about for you because you definitely in this interview anyone listening i can tell you have put a lot of time and thoughts into what this means not just for the tech side but humanity and and you know philosophically and all these things what is your kind of learning process. I know sometimes it's hard to identify our own learning process, but I'm thinking about people who are like, you know what? I've got some new thoughts here. I didn't, you know, this hearing aid thing, maybe I need to, I'll put a link in the show notes if people want to check it out, you know, but how do you go about thinking, learning, navigating these spaces? Not that it's the same routine all the time, but I think how can, I think it's always interesting to figure out how people are learning or processing this, because that might be something that we could apply I'm thinking about these people that are brand new to AI. They're like, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know how to think about it. You know, what's kind of your routine? Uh, I, I'm i going to say that I'm saying that term loosely because I know it's probably not like, oh, at yeah. 9.05, I do this and 10.30, I do this. Like, how are you trying to navigate all this? Yeah, 
Um, I mean, I think I think my maybe like like my philosophy background here um, probably shapes a lot about how I approach these topics. Um, and I think there's like a good um, three-step process maybe of like uh, read as much as you possibly can about it. And so this includes everything from, you know, books, tweets, um, the newest news articles, um, developer documentation, because I, I, I um, you know, I'm a developer and I like to, to think about the computer science side to stay in touch with it, even if I'm not doing a lot of development these days, um, and kind of just read everything that's out there. Um, and then spend some time writing about it. And, that, you know, that's the philosophy part here where, like, the, the way we learned all the philosophy was by writing our own things about it, even if we were still in the process of learning. And so um, whether it's a random blog post, whether it's, you know, a memo to my team, whether it's a book, um, all of that is part of my learning journey in terms of uh, being able to kind of, like, figure out what my own thoughts are on it, how I'm going to articulate these things and what I grasp with and what the loopholes still are um, and what I still need to go back and read more about. Um, and then there's the talking and teaching part. And I think that's like, you know, this is where like, even this today is part of my learning journey for these things. And thinking yeah. about um, maybe how you phrased the question, got my brain to th put things together that I hadn't been put together before. Uh, maybe uh, I'll sit out after this talk and think about, oh, maybe I should write a blog post about that one comment I made or one comment he made um, and think about what, I, what that means to me. And so I think just like, um, a lot of um, philosophizing, I think, is, is a good way to learn anything, um, but definitely something like this that has major implications. And I think kind of letting your brain kind of go a little wild um, is great. Um, I think sticking to, you know, there's just so much information out there, though. So when I say that, um, a lot of folks get caught up on that read stage. And I think folks are, um, you know, they know that, you know, that there's there's so many books out there that they that are coming out on a regular basis um, on all aspects of AI. There's AI in business books, there's AI ethics books, there's AI in education books, there's um, AI computer science books, uh, there's computer science for someone who has no computer science background books. Okay, the, <laughs> information coming at is pretty rapid. Um, every day there's like, you know, five to 10 new updates on across all the major like AI, you know, someone has some update at least once a day. Um, and trying to keep up with all of that and then not getting a chance to take the time to think about these things is also an issue that I've seen with a lot of folks. Um, there's like, I just don't know enough yet to like really talk about it with anybody or to talk about it with my peers or maybe even do a, you know, lead a professional learning community at my school about it. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't think that's true. I think a lot of folks, some of that learning will happen as you start becoming um, comfortable, you know, going and sitting at, down with a couple of peer teachers and saying, let's, why don't we sit down and meet once a week um, and talk about this one AI book I'm reading or these two AI books I've read. Um, and we can kind of start to grapple with these thoughts in person. Um, because I think at the end of the day, the, the human interactions here are so important. And um, I think the humanity in the learning process is even more important when we're grappling with larger questions about humanity. Um, and I think this is not something that's going to happen where you, you know, you read a textbook and at the end of the day, you're like, okay, I know everything that's going to happen. I know everything I need to do and it's all over. Um, I think it's going to be lots of interactions with your fellow peers, with students, have conversations with everybody around you. Um, and maybe, maybe in a few years, we can all start to have a much more robust understanding of what um, we need to do as a community of educators. Um, but I think I think that learning is going to happen um, in social settings, I think a lot more, um, just because there's so many of these things that are dependent on, um, you know, all of our unique perspectives on this, um, but also all what we're all collectively willing to do, I think is a big part of it. And I think we can't figure that out from any one source. I love that. And this was so completely not planned. I didn't even plan to ask that question. But we we literally, I think we just went full circle in this whole conversation, if we talked about the idea early on of teachers worried about cheating and plagiarizing the five paragraph essay and what you just said is so spot on. The things that we're worried about in the schools are the very things that we also should be doing in our learning process. And you're so right. Yeah, we read, we scroll, maybe it's a book, a post, whatever, but taking that time to write. Um, I mean, again, people can't see, but I've got a notebook I scribble notes on. I've got 10,000 Word documents of just like half barfed off ideas I don't want to lose, but I just have to get it out of my brain. And I think 
the the things that we we hold true to like why we teach right well this is cheating the kids need to know how to write but yes but we should be doing those same things so that we can engage in that dialogue that 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 human pedagogy of conversation and dialogue and taking that time to process and so yes the tools could do it but there's still that real thought power to be able to articulate the ideas that we're doing and, and move from just that kind of absorption process of I read. And then, you know, probably for a lot of us, we scroll to the next uh, headline. And so uh, kind of funny and ironic all at the same time that, yeah, you know, uh, those, those skills are, are, are still timeless, you know, uh, whether we're talking AI or all the way back to the, the time of Socrates where he thought the written language was cheating itself that, you right. know, uh, as, as a storyteller, if you couldn't keep it between your ears, you had to write it down. Ah, <laughs> blasphemy, you know? Uh, so here we are. Uh, so I don't know. I just got really excited of my epiphany moment there. So I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, you know, to again, be respectful of your time. We'll get all the links of people to, connect with you, but I always like to end if someone's listening and they're at a red light and they want to start to learn more about you now, where are some of those, 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 the best places to, to find you and your work, you know, if they want to go quickly, uh, snag uh, a couple of follows for you. Yeah. Um, I think our Instagram is where I would first recommend everybody start uh, is pedagogy cloud. Um, we post daily with like prompts, news updates. So if you, if you don't want to keep on top of all the updates that are relevant to educators, we do that for you. Um, we post snippets of our webinars, when our webinars will be happening, courses, and a lot about the book itself. And so, um, you know, if you're looking for a one-stop place, if you're someone who scrolls on your Instagram and you want to once in a while see something related to your work, uh, our Pedagogy Cloud Instagram is definitely the place to start. Um, and then I think uh, the book is the second place I would recommend folks check out. So the book kind of, um, I, I hope, is a starting place for some of these conversations, um, for something for you to sit down with your peers and sit down and be like, okay, these are some questions that Preet can raise in the book. Now, can we actually think about them together based on some of the context he's provided? Um, and we're actually we have a PLC guide that's coming out to help teachers kind of do that in these book club settings at their own, um, in their own pace and with their peers. Um, and so if you, if you want early access to that, an email to team at pedagog.ai, um, we'll get you access uh, to our PLC guide so you can kind of structure a, um, a conversation around the book with your peers. I love it. And I definitely uh, support both of those platforms. I love your Instagram accounts. I, I always make sure that notification goes off and uh, your book is definitely, I've, I'm not going to say I read them all because I feel like 10 more come out every day, but I've read a lot of these books around AI and what it means for education and humanity. And this is definitely uh, up to the top of one of my favorite ones. It just really, you, you, you've done an excellent job of crafting it and putting it together. And, and really, quite honestly, as my dopamine hits or every 10 minutes trying to see what new update is, is dropping on any of the platforms, it it reads timeless uh, because it's, it's, it's more about these concepts that we're, we're talking about today. And so whether you read it now, you read it three, four, five months from now, and who knows what all the things look like, the questions, the prompts, the exit tickets, things to think about, um, you know, will, will definitely resonate. So um, really, really great stuff there. So I can't thank you enough for taking time to, to join me on the show. This has been a really fun conversation definitely brighten up uh, my day. I'm looking forward to the rest of it and uh, definitely gonna have to do some processing, but thank you so much for your time and uh, carving out the, the, this opportunity for this uh, great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast today as well, so it's <laughs> great. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos.